Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is going to challenge you. His name is Gary Mitchell, and he specializes in helping businesses transform and to execute strategy. He specializes also in the delivery of high-quality interactions between teams, but also with customers. Gary, would you mind just giving a quick 60 seconds introduction to who you are and your journey thus far? Yeah. Hi, Marcus. Nice to be on the podcast. I would describe myself as a strategy execution and transformation specialist. So I work with CEOs and leadership teams on two things. First is help them come together to articulate their strategy clearly to win investment or to uh, get higher valuation at exit or to mobilize their strategy delivery. And the second thing is to help them put the put in place the building blocks for successful transformation, leveraging my 30 years experience leading or rescuing large transformation programs. What type of programs have you been involved in? Yeah, mostly, you remember the EU, that thing we were in. Um, I did a lot of um, logistics, supply chain, and call center integration work through the 90s and year 2000. I started work in factories. I've worked up the supply chain. And from the logistics integration, I went into ERP. Remember ERPs, those big nasty systems? Rescuing ERP projects was my specialization for a while. And this means I've come into contact really with almost every function in the business and had to understand what every function was trying to do and understand how every function um, joined up with the adjacent functions. Okay. Now, I know that you've created a strategy execution playbook. What does one of those look like? Yeah, what I realized was every engagement, I'd go in and do the same things. I'd look for the same things. So I put together just a list of 10 things, which really, if one of the 10 is missing, we're going to struggle to deliver transformation. So it starts right back at the beginning with, have you got clarity on the outcomes you uh, are looking for? And ends with, you know, are we communicating effectively with uh, stakeholders and the organization? So, you know, it's kind of a template and you can look at each of the 10 and see if we're good there or we've got work to do. So what are the four most common questions that you get asked when people bring you in? Well, the first question that people always say is, is, well, how do we fix sales or operation or service delivery? You know, how do we fix this part of the business? And really that, to me, is the wrong question because really everything's interconnected. And if, if you look at a single function, a, thing, a single function can't fix itself. Otherwise, it would have fixed itself. The things that are wrong with single functions mostly are the things they can't fix and the things influenced or driven from other functions. If you're going to change one part of the system and you don't uh, adjust the other parts, uh, inevitably it's going to go wrong. So uh, a great analogy here is a camera. You can adjust the shutter speed, the film speed, or the aperture. And if you change one of those without adjusting the others, chances are 
you're going to distort the uh, the picture. So why is it that people come at it uh, fixated on trying to fix the one thing? Well, we, we've got this um, unhealthy fixation on functional autonomy. And like you say, the customer doesn't see the functions of the business. The customer sees the business. And if you give functions autonomy, the chances of them executing in a completely joined up way are practically zero. And silo thinking is driven from entirely from the unhealthy obsession with financials as well. So that church of finance has a stranglehold on so many businesses and it's misguided because what that tends to do is focus on the wrong end of the problem. It focuses on outputs rather than inputs and outcomes. Yes, a lot of people have, uh, you know, when I ask them, where's your business plan? They show me a spreadsheet, <laughs> right? Um, but the spreadsheet will show you, show you what you aspire to, but it won't show you the things you need to do to achieve those aspirations. That's like giving people a destination but no map. Yeah, exactly. Here's, okay. way, here's, here's the desert island. Make your own way. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm guessing one of the other questions is how do we get away from silo thinking? Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, my opinion on this is, is like we're in silo thinking because we've got an unhealthy obsession with the financials. And the way I put it is that the financial cart is leading the build the future horse. So really, the horse, the build the future, needs to be in the lead of the cart. Because as we've said, we need to build the future, and then the future delivers the financials. Now, like a horse and carriage, we can't do without the horse or the carriage. We need them both. But many companies have the, the, uh, a strong set of financials, a strong set of financial, financially-based management meetings. But if you ask them, where is your plan to build the future, you would struggle to get an answer and you'd struggle to get anything written down and you'd struggle to get anything that the leadership team reviews together on a regular basis to see where they're at. Where, where I've been uh, helping my clients uh, in terms of their uh, strategy, we've, we have to understand where we're headed. We need to understand the functions, the roles that are going to get them there. We need to understand whom among our people are going to be able to uh, grow into those roles or where we need to recruit or train or replace. And we need to have systems and processes and uh, measures. But most of that seems to be completely lacking in my experience in virtually every business I've ever worked with. Is that your experience as well? Yes. And I think it comes down to one thing. It comes down to the fact that nobody owns the customer journey end to end, no one person. And it comes down to the fact that if I ask to see the customer journey written down, <laughs> nobody's got it. Now, how do I know this? Well, actually, I've had my nose run into it, rubbed into it for the last 20 years because every system implementation that goes wrong, they haven't got a joined-up view of where they're going to get to when the system is fully implemented. 
right? Sales have an opinion, operations, pre-sales, they all have opinions, but nobody's written it down, pointed at the components and said, yes, this, is, this will do it. And so what happens is you can't build a plan without a finishing line, and therefore everybody builds their own functional plans, and we put junior people in charge of designing processes, and what we get is a mess that goes nowhere that pleases nobody. It, it sounds to me like there's an awful lot of abdication by management because they see that kind of activity as either boring or beneath them. And they're not necessarily willing to put in the difficult work that's necessary in strategy, planning, and communicating that plan. Is that a fair observation? Very fair. I mean, I'd put it more bluntly, as I say, I see senior management as entitled. They go, right, I've been promoted. I don't have to bother with sticky notes, right? I'm above all this. The problem is you run a business whose entire purpose, complete purpose, is to deliver a customer journey that delivers the outcomes you require to the, the customer requires and delivers the experience that is consistent with, with how you want them to feel and will make them come back and be advocates and all that good stuff. It's really clear from what you're saying that the starting point is the customer. It's the user of your products or your services and the attention needs to start with them, focus on the outcomes that they are renting from you for as long as you continue to deliver value to them. And you need to work backwards from there. And the mistake, which is uh, commonplace, is that you start by creating a shiny new widget. Uh, my pal, Jerry Lemberg, rest his soul, used to describe uh, entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And I think there's a really depressing statistic as well that I read about in October last year, which is that 40% of help desk and call center inquiries stem from uh, the fact that engineers designed the product, not human beings. Yeah. So if you had one choice bit of advice uh, to leaders with regard to humanizing their product, their processes, their business, what would it be? Well, first of all, on strategy development, I find that if you ask people about their strategy, what they do is they focus on their function. So they basically go, well, here's what sales need to do, and I, I'm in charge of sales, and here's what I need to do. And they might throw a few other things about what they need to do over there, but all of that language is internally focused. When I write a business plan for private equity businesses, I start with a list, having them list out their customers to me. If they're business to business, you can do that. And what you find is all customers are not created equal. You find there are some customers that are your core customers, what I call the halo customers, okay? They're your customers that you deliver, your, your business ter delivers terrific value to. And also, everybody else looks at those customers and go, oh, my God, this is what they use. We should think about that as well. Now, there are the halo customers. There are the uh, other customers, which we've 
needed to meet our quota quarterly, and we've we've just got them over the line. We've pushed them over the line. We've used our personal attributes as a salesperson, and we've managed to get them to sign the deal. We deliver average or rotten value, and they're a bloody pain in the arse because uh, they complain everything. They're not getting good value because actually we practically force them to take part. And when I look at business planning, you'd have four different groups of customers and actually future growth. If I take the business forward then three years and say, well, which which of these four groups do we want more customers from? And there will be two groups or one group. And that is how you build the plan. So you then start planning by talking about that group. And then you start talking about the outcomes that group is needed, is needing. And, and I, I view customers not as markets, not as businesses, but as individuals. Because as the guy from Splunk on your podcast says, you find the person in the business who you're going to make spectacularly successful and you focus in on that person and you design your outcomes to that um, problem and that need. Very interesting. So when it comes to planning and developing a, a business plan and a strategy, what are the kind of questions that you get and how do you advise people there? Well, what we do is we, people ask me, what kind of a horizon should we be thinking about? And I think it's useful to talk about this horizon question because I use a 10-year, a three-year, and a one-year horizon. And if you look at annual reports, you'll see a lot of 10-year horizon stuff in there, a lot of uh, mission values, principles. This is what we're, we're, you know, how we're going to be in society. But you see very little three-year. This is absolutely where we've got to get to in order to be relevant. And you see practically nothing on the one-year one year horizon, which is what are the big five things we have to get delivered in the next 12 or 18 months to be in the best possible position to achieve our three-year goals. And actually, the one-year horizon, the five big things and your ability to deliver the five big things is what everybody, staff, investors, your team, looks at to see if you're serious. So you can say anything you like in the 10-year and three-year horizons, but if you don't deliver anything, nobody takes it seriously and everybody gets off the bus or off the train. Everybody says, well, you know, these guys, just a set of aspirations. We're not on there. Well, this is really interesting because so often uh, you hear uh, the internal chatter and gossip, which is, oh, here we go again. This too will pass because there is no clarity. And, you know, I have a view that ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups. Ambiguity leads to mismatched expectations. And then leadership blames their people when, in fact, it's down to them. The other problem with ambiguity and uh, that silo mentality is that what you end up with is ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. So that then leads to a blame culture, an excuse culture, a victim mindset. And it's them versus us instead of creating this alignment across the business in terms of how are we going to fulfill that mission and that purpose and uh, make sure that it lines up with what our customers' outcomes are. How expensive is it when leadership is not clear, not 
aligning the different silos within the business so that as far as the customer's journey is concerned at every touch point, there is consistency uh, towards the mission and purpose. Because it, it, it strikes me that the experience for the customer will be disjointed because employees' experience is dissatisfying and they are the people whose job it is to execute the strategy. Yes, well, I go back to your sales podcasts, your many sales podcasts. Your, the cheapest sale is when you retain customers. Yeah. Okay? If you disappoint them or fail to deliver the outcomes, then you won't. And your cheapest marketing is advocates, strong customer, strong halo customer advocates. So not every customer is an ideal advocate. Your ideal advocate, I would encourage people to have a customer plan, by the way, because who do you want to sell to that will help you sell to the next group? And that next group help you sell to the next group. So having forcing clients to articulate their customer evolution or customer journey year by year actually brings the thinking that all customers aren't equal. And if we get those five customers over there, they will have a halo of 30 other customers who will want to be interested in what those halo customers are doing and therefore well, make it easier to sell. This is where it really is uh, important that salespeople understand that just going for organic growth within the customer is a missed opportunity. There is an entire ecosystem, an entire marketplace that's open to you in terms of suppliers, partners, joint venture partners, alliances, the customer's customer. Because these people who are your Halo customers and Halo uh, customer advocates can introduce you to all of those organizations and to the individuals within those organizations that they interact with who are likely to be good prospective buyers. And your marketing costs, your cost of sale can be dramatically reduced. But most organizations, most sales organizations and most marketing organizations are utterly obsessed with number of marketing qualified leads at the top of the hopper, sales qualified leads, demos, first meetings, proposals, none of which actually helps you to advance really because all of them are lagging indicators. And the part of the problem here is if you don't have a customer plan and tied to that a relationship plan so you can go on a charm offensive and a referral plan, then odds are you are leaving a vast, obscene amount of money on the table and you're working way harder than you should or need to. And that takes you away from paying attention to the uh, customers that you do have and delivering exceptional value to them. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely fair. I would encourage people to know their Halo customers. That then raises the next question, which is how do you identify who is not your customer? What, what's the process you take people through uh, for that? Well, people, people generally know who are their good customers and bad customers. They gen you can tell by the body language when they discuss a customer to me. You know, they're either, yeah, this is great. We've done some great things. This is all going well. They can't always articulate it very well, but, but you can tell when a customer is a good customer and 
and then you can follow up on the exact reasons why. And you can also tell when a customer is a bad customer, a pain in the ass. The secret is to, to figure out what makes you successful in those customers. I'm going to challenge that slightly in that very often I have come across situations where um, a, a vendor organization and the sales team are in love with a particular customer uh, because they're familiar. They've worked with them for years. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're good customers. And in fact, very often, when you do the analysis and you really dig deep, which is, again, something that I see lacking in uh, most leadership and management teams, is they accept at face value that someone is a good customer, but often they are not. And what you need to do is reassess and make sure that who used to be your ideal customer still is, and also be very clear about what the criteria of a halo customer is over just an average customer. Because very often, you see a whole heap of time, money, resource applied to an average customer, whilst a potentially powerful halo customer is largely ignored, overlooked, and then becomes despondent because they don't feel loved. And the opportunity is missed. You leave the door open for a competitor to get their toe in the door. And before you know it, you're out. So just bear that in mind. You must remember that I always talk to uh, the leadership team. I always talk cross-functionally. So if you look at sales and you talk to sales, they might love a customer. But I'll bet you if it's a bad customer, they won't love it in service delivery. They'll have completely poles apart opinion. Ah, okay. So let's take that conversation a little bit deeper. So thank you for uh, correcting me. So again, if you look at the different functions within the business, you've got marketing, you've got sales, you've got operations, you've got customer success, you've got finance, you've got marketing, uh, sorry, you've got legal, you have uh, innovation, the maintenance and engineering teams. It's really important that you get all of those opinions together. And you're also speaking to your customers and potentially If you work through channels, you should also be speaking to your partners because all of that gives you the insight into the reality of uh, whether or not that is a great customer. Well, I tell you what gives me the insight into the reality, Marcus, and it's this. It's the customer journey. I get my sticky notes out and I get the functions in the room, not together, but one by one, and I say, right, what happens first and we start in, in, in finding customers and we end up with right, right at the back when we, when we receive money. What happens first? What happens next? Who does it? What do they do it on or with? And is it shit? And if it's shit, it gets a red one, right? Yeah. So I, I map the whole business. Now, people go, you can't map the whole business. We've got five shelves worth of procedures. It's impossible to map the business. Not at the level I map it at. You know, at Dixon's, they said that to me. They said, you can't map the business. I said, you're a fucking shop, right? What's so complex, right? Somebody walks in, they ask you for shit, and then you kind of take it to the till, and then the order goes somewhere, and there's five, seven, ten steps to get it delivered, right? It's not a million steps. It's it's 10 or 50, and if you can't tell me what they are, and if you can't tell me you're happy with those steps, and the customer's happy with those steps, then it don't work. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. 
but nobody owns the complete supply chain. Nobody, it's any rank in the business, does the customer journey mapping. And they don't certainly don't do it together because they're siloed. But I tell you what, when I do it, when I'm fixing big, big ERPs, what it gives you and what it gave me, it gave me a tourist attraction at Dixon's. People came to see the customer journey on the walls of the three conference rooms that we took over because it was the first time people had seen how returns happen, how Dixon's business supply chain is different than the retail supply chain. People didn't know how washing machines got delivered. It is quite easy when you get your stickies out and you get the right people. And also, it's quite easy to identify the steps that do work or don't work and where that lack of working is coming from. And it always comes from somewhere else. Once you've done your project, who then owns the customer journey? Well, what happens is once the, once the system is in and the fire is out, everybody goes back, everybody says bye-bye, Gary, and goes back to being dominated by the numbers. So we do enough to fix the system. We don't do enough to build a strategy because that's not what I was employed for. Okay, so who should own that strategy? Who should own the customer journey? If you were designing a business... Uh, from a blank sheet of paper, and you were designing those those roles, who would own that particular responsibility or be accountable? Yes. For? Now, what you find in a in a business as large as Dixon's, and I've, I've worked at Tesco as well. And what what you find is there's a small number of people who are the ideal owners of that customer journey. Um, so if I if I said, well, are the senior leadership team the owners of the customer journey? I'd be wrong because they don't know the customer journey. They sit in the ivory tower. Right. But I want the people who, if I ask a difficult question to a senior manager, that they refer down to. I call these the key lieutenants. And in Dixon's, there were 14 of them. And from a change management perspective, I was confident that if I wanted to change anything in that business, if I had these 14 people, now 14 is not a lot. It's not 114, it's 14. And that's right across an international business. If I had these 14 people's permission to change anything in that business, I could go and do it, right? And we owned together the customer journey outcomes that we were trying to deliver. Now, the thing is that 14 people, it will be less in other companies, need some facilit strong facilitation and somebody to act as the scribe and the, and the, the, the organizer and to, to make the interactions go well. So, so you know, I, while I was there, you know, I policed that and got everybody to participate and everybody saw the value. Once they see it, they see the value of, yeah, here's our customer journey. We need to steer that to a better place but before it's built you it's like dragging horses to water to drink you know it's it's terrible so you'd probably have a strategy director or somebody working with that second level and bear in mind the key lieutenants they don't have any interactions in normal life in a siloed organization they never talk to each other on a formal basis i interviewed a really interesting chap last year called patrick lindquist and he's responsible for turning 
Helsingborg in Sweden into the European city of uh, innovation. And he's hired a series of about a dozen managers whose responsibility it is to sit between the silos, and he calls them gap managers. Um, yeah. I can't say the Swedish. But their, their job is to make sure that there is that flow and that alignment. And their job is to translate what's going on between the different departments to make sure that there is that consistency. Yeah. So again... Well, I, would, I, would, I would say... That if you take that a step further and say the customer journey is the thing that brings them all together, and if you make those people, if you make the key lieutenants in each function, and and they know who they are, and the people at the top know who they are, and the people at the bottom know who they are, if you make those people the owners of the customer journey, then you're there, and you have one person to 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 make all that interaction happen. What I find is people try and force people to work in teams. They try and force people to interact. But interaction without a purpose is, is wasted or meaningless. The purpose is to improve the customer journey, and then we're there. We've got it. Very interesting. I'm, I'm going to get you, Patrick, and also Professor Eddie Obeng onto a round table because I think you can upset an awful lot of people together yeah. because all, all of you are working in a very similar way but coming at it with quite different backgrounds so that uh, i think that's going to be a really interesting one okay um i, I know that uh, I, I have a question that i often ask which is what is the minimum level of technology uh, you need in order to help your sales team achieve optimal performance and um, I know that you often get asked, how do we leverage new technology? I, I think there's an obsession uh, with spending money on technology, on big data. Um, and it's, the ro- it's just like um, you know, trying to manage the business uh, by only looking at the financials um, instead of the behaviors that go into it and the people. Yeah. Um, so w- what's the right question people should be asking uh, around that? Yeah, the wrong question is, how do we use AI in this business? Or shouldn't we be into blockchain? Or we need to get everything into the cloud. The right question is, how do we transform the customer outcomes and experience to be able to achieve what we need to do? So that might be with technology or without technology. You lead with the outcomes that you want to get. And if you don't know the outcomes you want to achieve, don't go technology shopping because you ain't ready. That's it. Don't go shopping till you know what you want to buy. Well, I I see this in tech all the time. I remember speaking to a prospect last year, and they had a technology spaghetti map. And what what they ended up with was 15 different applications, nine of which replicated the work of the other six. And so they were spending about a million dollars a year on licensing. And that could have probably been cut down to a couple of hundred thousand. It would have created less confusion, less work, and enabled them to do a much better job. But again, they weren't focused on the outcome. They were focused on the inputs and focused on the numbers. That then leads me to the big question around blind spots. So what are the blind spots that you tend to look for when you get invited in? 
Well, firstly, it's I go back to what I was saying before is when we write business plans, we must start with the customer every time. So we tell the story about the customer. We don't start with the financials. In my business plans, the financials are always one of the last pages because they are the result of the things we need to do. Absolutely. So we start with the customer. And the biggest question the customer wants to know is who the hell are you? <laughs> who the hell are you and why should I even talk to you? Okay. So we focus on the customer. And once you start on the customer and then you identify the Halo customers and you ask the question, are we where we need to be with the Halo customers? And are these the same Halo customers in three years' time? Oh, no, they're not. Okay, well, who are the new Halo customers and what will those guys need? Then you start to get into the planning conversation. So the blind spot is we don't focus on the customer. In strategy execution, the blind spot tends to be we, when we're building business plans, we want to boil the ocean, okay? Yeah. So what we do is we take a list well, we take a poll of everybody and we list everything that we would want, to, might want to do and everything that's wrong with the business. And we put it in a great big long list and we create projects and then we try to do them. Yeah. Now, that is actually setting yourself up for failure, okay? Yeah. Because there's no way you can do them. You haven't got the bandwidth. You haven't got the resources. Strategy and strategy execution is about choice. You've got to choose. You've got to take your big bets. And they're, they're the blind spots. Thinking you can do everything, not focused on the customer. I think this is another really important issue. I interviewed a fascinating character, Michael Brody Waite, and his research suggests that a leader's inability to say no steals 31 hours per month from them. And more often than not, experience has taught me that the ability, uh, what you say no to matters more than what you say yes to. And so it's about being able to prioritize and make sure that what you're doing is meaningful, relevant, and timely. It's about knowing who needs to be accountable, who needs to be responsible, making sure that there is clarity in terms of timeframes, what is expected, uh, and measure the stuff you can control and don't worry about the stuff that you can't control. But surrender the outcome. You've got to focus on what you can control. And this is yeah. where I see so many leadership and management teams fall down because they try to manage the numbers. The numbers are a byproduct of the behavior that goes into them, the consistency, the frequency, the quality of uh, those behaviors. You know, just to push the point even further, if you consider what I do is I go into different sectors and different businesses once every two, three months, and I get to learn. You know, I don't know anything about those businesses, but I'm safe in the knowledge that when I build a business plan, I'm looking for some very simple end product. And that is, what are the five things you, this business has to do over the next 12 to 18 months in order to be in a better position. Now, this takes all those concepts like agile strategy and, and all of that, <laughs> systems thinking, all the, all the bollocks the academics and the consultants come up with. You ask any entrepreneur, you ask any business rescue person, 
or turnaround person, what you're looking for is five things. And by the way, you find five things and the buggers have only got the, the bandwidth to do three of them. So, but getting five from 50 is really what I'm all about. What are the most important five things? You're only allowed five things in that list. And by the way, senior management team, you all have to agree. Now, it's not, we don't need a great big analysis of the market. We don't need to understand everything about everything. The five things, two of them are in your face every day, right? And you've been ignoring them for two years and you still haven't knocked the buggers over. So they're on the list and we're going to track the shit out of those. Now, what this five things does, Marcus, and I'm on a bit of a rant at the moment. It's all right. We like this rant. What the five things does is it simplifies everything. It gives focus. It simplifies management of those five things because they're not 50 things. You look at the business that chooses 50 things it's got to achieve in its strategy. You've got 50 things to manage, 50 things to report on. You've got to have a governance pro, uh, process with 50 things. You have a, oh, we've got to have a PMO. We've got to have whatever. If you have five things, that's a conversation. And it can be weekly, right? Because yeah. things change every week. People always find one or two things that just need a, a decision every week. And if we have 50 things, we have a meeting every quarter to review our strategy. If we have five things, we can do it every two weeks. We can drive, we can focus, we can put, put it out there to people that we're going to do these five things and people can see us doing these five things. Well, th th this is where Price's Law comes in. 50% um, of your uh, outcomes will be determined by the square root of the number of problems that you have to try and fix. If you want to solve these problems, you need to narrow your focus and do a damn good job on solving those things that deliver 80% of the value. The problem is, if you try and please everyone, you please no one. And everyone is run ragged. So you end up with leadership and management becoming bottlenecks. You end up with upward delegation. And then you end up with that drama triangle kicking in because these uh, managers are trying to rescue everyone are complaining, oh, I'm working so hard. And everyone's working hard. And they're working yeah. hard on all the wrong things. And they are failing. If you're doing 50 yeah. things, you've only got capacity to five. By definition, you're failing on 45. Yeah. So you're actually, you've got a culture of failure. And you've bloated your middle management to try and manage 50 things when really you should be doing five. You could slim down your organization, flatten it, and just focus on the five. Every entrepreneur you ever speak to doesn't speak about 50 things. They, they tell you about three big things they've got, they're going to do. So behave like an entrepreneur. Have you ever been blindsided yourself? Uh, well, myself... You know, the biggest thing that blindsides me, really, um, is that I thought private equity businesses and senior teams would be more interested in strategy execution than they are. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so this, this is the thing that blindsides me the most, is I rant on about all this stuff, and they still think it is the preserve of their functions and the lower orders, whereas actually it's their job. And if strategy execution is not the job of the senior team and the board, then what is? 
Well, I think this is partly fueled by the culture of venture capital and private equity, um, because they dress themselves up as investors, but they're speculators and uh, they're bean counters more often than not. I don't think I'm being unfair. And as a result of that, they focus on the wrong end of the problem. They have an attitude that their portfolio is like a portfolio, uh, a banking, an investment portfolio. That they go, it's inevitable that 30% of these things will be uh, uh, failing actively. My attitude, being a turnaround person, is that it's not inevitable that a customer's failing. And then if a customer's, uh, sorry, that a company is failing, and if a company is failing, get in there, sort it out, kick the tires. Well, and, and redirect, off you go, and they're not interested. The failure rates are significantly higher than 30%. I've, I was being kind. You, you were being exceptionally kind. I think if we're being honest about it, maybe 20% survive relatively intact. Um, a tiny proportion, somewhere between 2 and 4%, do exceptionally well. Um, and at least 80% die on their ass uh, somewhere along the line or they just get traded amongst the investors. So I come to you and say, Gary, my fund's due to mature. I need to pay my investors back. Can you buy this uh, business off me? And I'll buy one off you in a couple of years. And so the, the, the original intention of the founders is massively missed because they just get pumped from pillar to post. And every time it changes hands, they go in, they strip it of its assets, they cut uh, staff, and it just gets tougher and tougher. I think it's simpler than that, and it goes right to the top of the private equity business. I've just got off a call with a great big company owned by a, a massive American private equity business, and their problem is common to many businesses owned by private equity. They bought the business, they saddled it up with debt so that whatever happens to the business, they can make their money through equity. The business pays back the debt, pays down the, the, the capital, and, and, and then the shareholders make out and go. And the problem with the business I was dealing with, with this morning is that they need investment. They've got a massive opportunity and they need investment in the next two years in order to take that opportunity that could make them 10 or 50 times as big as they are now. The right. problem they have is the private equity is loaded them up with debt. They're trying to maneuver the company into an EBITDA position in two years' time, that it will be, to quote the chief executive, uh, be in a, a different valuation band than they are now. So they're looking for short-term growth potential to shift the EBITDA in, in short, their strategy has been driven not by the customer opportunity, the market opportunity, but it's been driven by the way the company is financed. And the yeah. way the company is financed is to enrich the senior management and the private equity investors at the expense of the fund holders and the employees. That's my opinion. It's a bit And you're absolutely spot on. I think that too. <laughs> okay. I could rant on that for hours. I'm not going to. Tell me this. What are the three questions that you believe people should be asking, but they don't? First question would be, how do we dominate this market space? Now, when I say that to people, people say, well, we can't dominate. We're not that big. And I'm going, look, you need to dominate because it's a fight for attention. 
now. There is so much competition. There's so much. The internet is very confused. You have to get attention to get customers. And also, you have to fight for advocacy and retention at the back end of your business. Absolutely. So you have to choose your space and you have to dominate that space. Now, by, by dominate, I mean you have to be in the preferred set of suppliers in your customer's head. You have to be up there. You have to be in that consideration set. And that's why we go back to Halo customers and we say, well, who does everybody look to? And we've got to get ourselves one of those or two of those or three of those, and then we can actually be in that set. So you've got to plan to dominate. It's not an easy answer. Uh, Well, it's not. But what it also means is you have to make choices and prioritize and you have to say no to a lot. Again, if you're trying to please everyone, you please no one. And uh, the research that came out of Forrester in 2018-19 is really clear on this. The companies that are dominating are the ones that are hyper-niching. It's no longer good enough to be the MSP in health. You need to be the MSP in uh, for walk-in clinics of 50 people, uh, 50 doctors um, in Southeast London. And you need to be ready to say no to an awful lot. And that way you can love those customers to death. You can constantly deliver outstanding value to them. And you can also listen to them so that you can help them in achieve their intended outcomes and evolve with them. They become your advocates, but they also become your biggest source of innovation. And in yeah. fact, companies that do that, according to Salesforce's research uh, released in December of 2020, can actually innovate six times faster than companies that don't. Now, that yes, gives you a I, massive competitive advantage. Massive. And I think it goes back to, so you've got to focus and, and, and make choices. That goes to uh, investment as well. You know, my client this morning was talking about getting away from peanut butter investment. So if you spread your investment too thin, it doesn't work anywhere. So you need to make your bets at the front on the customers and you need to place your investment to maximize the impact. So peanut, it's an American customer. So, you know, peanut butter investment, there you go. It's not that, I don't know what the UK equivalent is. Um, Jam, jam investment. Um, so that that you know, focus. You need reputation, and you can't have reputation in every market space. So choose your market spaces. Reputation gets you in the consideration set. It gets you uh, advocacy. So where are you going to be? Who the hell are you? Is what I said earlier. Absolutely. Well, again, when I interview salespeople, I always ask them these three questions. I want them to be able to answer, why you, why us, and why you for us? Because if you can't answer those questions for your customer, and remember, an interview is nothing more than a sale, and so you need to qualify and be able to demonstrate that you have good, strong value to add in all three of those areas. If you can't answer those questions for your customers, frankly, you're toast. So yes. what's the next question people should ask but don't? One I've ranted on about already, which is, uh, does your customer journey work? I've said enough about that. If your customer journey works for your target customers, then fine. 
the next question is what what should your customer journey what does it need to be in the next three years so people don't look at their customers they don't have a customer plan they don't have a customer journey plan what's broken what do i need to fix where do we need to be they have a plan for service delivery they have a plan for uh, systems replacement or enhancement but they don't all comes back to the customer because that's the one thing that everybody in the business will agree on and that's the one thing that gets us out of this silo thinking the next question that people should ask is have i got the right team to take this business where it needs to go it's all about people if i give a little anecdote i was helping a big retailer with their turnaround many years ago and we had six projects I mean, they had 17 when I started, but I got them down to the first six and said, we're going to do these, and then people will think we've got a chance with the next, the next wave. I had six projects, and I, I listed in front of the senior team every project and the project lead that they had allocated to the six projects. And I went, project one, no leader. Project two, no leader. Project three, nobody likes this guy. Project four, nobody trusts this person and thinks they know shit. Project five, good. Good choice, right? And then I turned the page. I asked the question, what do you think my chances are of success? (laughs) And left that hanging. And the next page was I put the right people in because I'd been in the business a while, you know, a few days and I'd spoken and I knew who the right people are, the key lieutenants who had credibility and I put the right people in and they gasped and they said, well, you can't have those people because those people do everything. And I said, well, you're losing 20 million a year and you want to get the 20 plus 20 million a year profit. You'll need the best people, (laughs) right? (laughs) So these are the best people. Well, they don't know about managing a project i said well i know everything there is to, to know about managing a project i'll i'll help them but that person there she knows how to do merchandising properly and is dying for the opportunity to lead the business forward in this area she's ideal to lead the new merchandise system, management system this person knows about warehouse distribution etc so if you get the right people my point of this story is Once I got the right people, the next 18 months for me was quite easy because the right people delivered. And if you take that into another situation, uh, when I go into a business, I list the management team and I list the next level management and I talk about them with the senior team in one-on-ones. And you can tell from people's body language who the right people are and who needs to be moved or go. And so this then comes back to my earlier point. You have to start with clarity about where you are headed and your alignment with the customer. So I would build into the, absolutely build, build into the plan, that customer journey. And for you to be able to achieve that consistently, you need to know what roles you're going to need and where they're going to be required in the 10-year, three-year, and one-year timeframe. And then you look at the people that you've got and you look at who needs to be moved, who needs to be moved into the new role, who can grow into the role, who can be trained or coached into uh, those uh, positions that you're going to need 
six months from now, a year from now, two, three, five, ten years up the road. And your plan has to always be updated so that as you reach those milestones, you're now moving into the new iteration of the plan. Don't wait to do your planning at the point where you've already just achieved your goal. This, again, I think is one of the most important things, that if these uh, cross-functional teams are not talking regularly, and uh, certainly in the conversation I had with Tom Shodoff, the leadership and management teams were meeting regularly, and they had roll up your sleeves and knock them down fights behind closed doors so that they could make sure that they were always aligned. And there was a cadence, a rhythm, to which they communicated. And uh, each manager had a rhythm, an operating rhythm. And if you don't have all of that, then slow down. You have to slow down to speed up. And this is where I think so many organizations, particularly where they're getting pressure from investors, from the senior leadership team, don't take enough time on reflection, on planning, on rehearsal. Sales teams, I'm just putting together a bunch of playbooks for my clients. And one of the things that we are going to be measuring people on is their planning, their rehearsal, and their debriefing. Because if you don't do all three of those, then all you do is busy work and you let a load of stuff slip through the cracks. And that's expensive because the opportunity that you're losing is obscene. So talk to me about the importance of building the right team at the right time in the right way. Yes, I'm going to use an example here, fintech, I've been working with. And if you think about a hyperscaling business, now it is a hyperscaling or or close to hyperscaling business, fast growth business, and a technology business probably started in somebody's garage with two guys, right? Right. And then it then it moved to a shitty business park, and then it and it's growing fast, and and it's scale, it's having to scale. And the situation I found it at is we we were we were going global. We're going global. The chances are you haven't got a global management team in place at that point, and the chances are you cannot coach or evolve these people into global executives. So it's a very, very difficult situation we found ourselves in where we have to to basically take the management team who'd taken five years of their lives to get the business with a chance of going global and replace them with people who had experience of managing a global business. So we had to move them down or across or in some cases out. Now, that's incredibly tough and incredibly it's not written about anywhere. Yeah. And what an experience. It was an experience for me, but it was, it was very difficult for the chief executive because a lot of difficult conversations have to be have, had. But if you don't have them, asking somebody who worked on a business park in uh, Milton Keynes how to grow Asia, it's not going to get very far. You have to hire somebody <laughs> who's... Uh, who knows that? And asking somebody who's who's written software um, in in a quite a small way how to actually deliver a global uh, platform that has a response time of of less than a second anywhere in the world, then that's 
that's quite an all in the cloud or half in the cloud or, or on soil in Saudi Arabia, for example, you know, you, 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 you won't get an answer. So you have to get the right people. And because it takes so long to get people, you have to get the right people sooner than you need them. Absolutely. And you plan ahead and you've got to build the bench. So if you know in a year's time you're going to need a senior executive, you probably need to start that recruitment process two years ahead because these people have a long notice period. And you need to make sure that you're fishing from the entire pool, not just the available candidates. So again, this is where planning really comes into its own. And you have to think strategically. If you want to grow, if you want to achieve hypergrowth, you absolutely have to be thinking years ahead. And just because it's yeah. difficult work doesn't mean you don't do it. In fact, and that's I, the very reason why you should. Exactly. It's difficult work and you should do it. I worry slightly when you say, when you say the words, we need to think strategically, because that word has been hijacked by people by consultants, by by publications thinking strategically is is this wide and wonderful thing where you talk about everything and it's data-driven and you have to understand everything about the market. Whereas we've been talking today about understanding who your Halo customers are today, who they've got to be tomorrow, and who they have to be the day after, and what kind of story we will have to tell and how that story evolves. That's easier than saying strategically. That's more meaningful to a salesperson. Well, I think what you're saying here is strategy is about looking ahead rather than wide. I'm saying it's simpler than people would have you believe. Right. Selling is about a story foremost. Absolutely. And it's about focus, who you're selling to, and what's our story going to be to those people. And that will then tell you what you have to do. And the reason I bang on about customer journey the whole time is it's the only thing that brings the the functions together. It's the only thing that unites the customer and every function in your business. And we know what it looks like today. We know what we need to change. If we look at our customers that we need in 18 months' time, we know what we have to do to our customer journey in order, in, a, in order to get them into the business. And if we look at our customers in three to five year time, then we know how we've got to evolve. Oh my God, we'll have to go global. We'll have to set this up. And that gives you the foundations for strategy that everybody in the company can understand. What irritates me is people think strategy is a senior management thing, and then we throw the heavy lifting down to the functions to do because we've done our job as senior managers. We've taught the clever stuff, and it's not clever stuff. Every single person in the company needs to understand the strategy, and that's about stories, customer stories, the stories about our own evolution as a company. Absolutely. And it hasn't got to be 500 slides. It's got to be 15. Absolutely. And again, who the hell wants to sit through 500 slides? So, Gary, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been incredibly insightful. And I'd love to have you back, not only on your own, but for a couple of roundtables I've now got in mind. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. 
and you can go back and advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What one choice bit of advice would you have given him that you think he'd have probably have ignored? At the age of 23, I should have worked harder to get myself a coach. I kind of knew I needed one because I, I'm a pig farmer's son, right? So I know I knew nothing about anything except feeding <laughs> pigs and milking cows. So I knew I knew nothing, but I didn't have the courage to go and ask. I was too shy to ask the right people to okay. guide me. Very common issue. And uh, often people have an I'm not worthy script, or they often think that asking for help is a sign of weakness. It is anything but. There is a fabulous book called Horse Sense by Jack Trout and Al Reese, which is all about finding the right people in order to help you advance. And I, I can't remember, I think it's The Eighth Discipline uh, by Stephen Covey, which is all about becoming a tip tiller. It's about being the person who helps senior management leaders to achieve their goals and finding the right person to support so that you can learn from them. What are some books that you've been influenced by? The main ones, really, are my first management book, if you like. My, my first, not when I was five years old, but when I was 25, was The Goal by Goldblatt. And really, this is an interesting book for non-manufacturing people because it describes multifunctional organizations and how they all have to come together to get things done and how bottlenecks are bad and to look for the bottlenecks. So I guess me banging on about the customer journey comes from that book. It's 25 years old. I haven't moved on much. <laughs> so, and the next one I'm going to say is Start With Why by Sinek. Yeah, because that's been purpose, recommended many times. Purpose and connection to your target customer community is everything. Full stop. End of story. That's it. it. Find it. It's a story. And and the 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 final one I'd like to say is the advantage by Lencioni. This is about organization health. It's about finding purpose, focus, and simplicity. And there's an excellent chapter on good meetings in there. And and, and his book, Death by Meeting is yeah. a fabulous extension of that. He says that meetings should be fun, something people look forward to. Yeah. People come out energized and you should look forward to it like the next Bond film. The thing people say to me is, is when I come into businesses, they have a set of management meetings already set up. And when I run a uh, strategy implementation, I create a parallel universe, if you like. So you've got one universe managing the business and the other universe is building the future. And I'm a big believer that those two universes are, should be separate because they're different mindsets. Don't tie building the future onto the back of building, running the business. Have it separate. And if you run your meetings well, people come out going, oh my God, that's the best meeting I've ever been to. And that's Absolutely. the best compliment I get. Wonderful. Gary, how can people get hold of you? Right. Quite simply, LinkedIn. So if you Google search Gary Mitchell strategy execution on LinkedIn, and LinkedIn, you'll get me. Don't just Google Gary Mitchell because Gary Mitchell was a character in Star Trek who got shot by Captain Kirk <laughs> for, for, for going, going rogue. And uh, <laughs> that's not me. And my website is www.gary-mitchell.com. Excellent. Gary Mitchell, thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus.
This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And do get in touch with Gary. If you are struggling to implement an effective strategy, if you're looking to grow, if you've hit an impasse in your business, then please get hold of him. Now, what do I do? I'm a fractional chief revenue officer for fast-scaling technology companies. So if you want to grow by 200% per annum plus compound and achieve a significant valuable exit by building a long-lived business with strong fundamentals, fully aligned marketing, sales, customer success, sales operations, and you are looking to create lifetime customers who keep coming back and they're halo customers who are your advocates, then get in touch with me. My email address is marcus at laughs-last.com. You can get me on LinkedIn and DM me. And if you want to be a guest on the podcast, uh, email me or DM me. And if you know someone who'd be good, then please connect us. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.